0: Never throw a stone and hide your hand. We left off last episode on December 22nd. The Creep was in an interrogation room with Albrecht and ASA Larry Finder. The defense team of Mata and Amarante is now at full strength, and Bill Kunkel has been assigned to prosecute the case and has started building his team to assist him, which consists of Bob Egan, Larry Finder, and Terry Sullivan. The displays Police and Lieutenant Kozenczak are still desperately searching for Rob Pease's body and for more evidence against John Wayne Gacy. Before we jump back in, let's examine why it remains so critical for the state to continue to amass evidence against Gacy. Because on its face, you may be saying to yourself, they're digging up bodies from under the creep's house and he's now confessed three separate times to the police. What else could they possibly need? Well, I'm glad you asked because it's your favorite time and my favorite time. It's definition time.
1: time.
0: Now, evidence falls into one of two categories in terms of being introduced at trial, and those are direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. Contained within these two main categories are all types of evidence, such as physical evidence, documentary evidence, forensic evidence, testimonial evidence, demonstrative evidence, and even digital evidence. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of the types of evidence that could be introduced, but you get the point. The single most important concept I want you to understand is the difference between direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. Because when you have a firm grasp on those two concepts, you can look at the evidence and determine the relative strength of any case, either for the defense or for the prosecution. Direct evidence is defined as evidence which confirms a fact in which the trier of fact, which is either the jury or the judge depending on the type of trial, does not have to make an inference in order to know that it is a fact. The easiest example of this is, say you're enjoying a lovely lunch at your favorite restaurant with your best friend. And at some point during the meal, a third mutual friend walks up to your table. You greet him, he greets you. Suddenly, he then pulls out a pistol from his waistband and screams at your best friend. You son of a bitch, you slept with my wife. And then he proceeds to fire around right between your best friend's eyes, killing him. Now, clearly there is no mystery here as to who committed the crime. But remember that at trial, the jury is most likely unfamiliar with the case and they must hear the facts from the attorneys, which is done through the introduction of evidence by the state and the defense. Now that evidence must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant committed the crime. So here you've got an eyewitness who is not only present and observed the execution firsthand, but more importantly is familiar with the assailant. Because often eyewitness testimony can be unreliable. Think my cousin Vinny, the two youths. So the fact that the witness actually knows the defendant is huge. That would be direct evidence and it's the most powerful evidence that there is circumstantial evidence can also be very powerful and frankly is far more common in criminal cases because the smoking gun is not often found. It's defined as a set of circumstances or instances which does not directly prove a fact but creates a strong inference by linking together a chain of events that something in fact has occurred. Now in law school, the most common hypothetical to explain it was this. Imagine that you are standing at your bedroom window, looking out at your front yard before you go to bed. You're admiring your dead brown grass. It's the middle of December in Colorado. You crawl into your bed for a tasty night's sleep. You pull your comforter up to your chin and quickly fall asleep. Hours later, your hideous alarm violently rips you out of your restful slumber. You hit snooze four or five times And finally, you stagger out of bed. Walking to the window, rubbing your eyes, you pull back the curtain and observe that your once dead brown lawn is now covered with a pristine blanket of sparkling white snow. Now, you never saw the snow actually falling during the course of the night, but you had observed your lawn just prior to going to bed and there was no snow upon it whatsoever. You slept a solid eight hours and woke up and there it is, boom, snow. So you know, circumstantially, that it snowed while you slept, even though you didn't personally observe it happen. That is circumstantial evidence. And as I stated, it can be powerful as well, but it can also be attacked by opposing counsel more readily than direct evidence can be. How in that circumstance, you may ask, could that scenario be attacked? Well, suppose that while you slept that a production company was filming a movie scene on your block and you were unaware that this was happening. And this particular scene took place at night and the director wanted there to be snow falling in the scene, you know, where the guy finally gets the girl back after blowing it with her earlier in the movie. So they rent a snowmaking machine to produce snow during the filming of the scene. And that sucker pumps out uh, a solid three inches under your lawn while you slept. So in fact, it did not snow as is evidenced by all of your neighbors' dead brown lawns. Granted, this is an extremely far-fetched example of attacking circumstantial evidence, but typically circumstantial evidence in a criminal case is not as definitive as the Snow hypothetical. No, typically it's more of a, where there's smoke, there's fire inference that must be made by the trier of fact based on a series of inferences that have been introduced into evidence by the state or the defense which would typically be an alternate theory to the state's theory of what may have happened. So there you go, lesson over. Now, let me ask you this. Let's put aside the fact that it appears that clearly the defense is going to employ the insanity defense in defending the creep. But when we look at the actual evidence they have collected, and I mean legitimately collected, starting with the bones being dug out of the crawl, John Zick's class ring, the length of rope found in the kitchen garbage, the box of badges, handcuffs, various driver's licenses of young men, would you categorize all of this evidence as circumstantial or direct? I'll wait for your answer. And remember, this is pre-DNA. Okay, if you said circumstantial, well, go ahead and do that patting yourself on the back thing again, because that is the correct answer. All of the aforementioned evidence is circumstantial as none of it directly proves that Gacy killed any of these young men, but it sure brings you to a strong inference that he did. But what about our little planted friend, the photo receipt? Had it been true that the photo receipt had been found in the house, it would have been pretty clear that either pieced or at the very least his jacket, where buyers claim to have left the receipt, was at some point in Gacy's home. So, yeah, that's circumstantial, but very, very strong circumstantial evidence. Now, if Gacy's neighbor was one of those nice older folks who spends most of their days observing life from their chair perched near their front window, and they saw Gacy arrive home, and also saw Rob Peast get out of the car and go into the house, that would be direct evidence. Not that Gacy killed Peace, mind you, but that Peast was in Gacy's home. So at this point, you may be asking yourself, why is he bringing this up now? Gacy's given it up to the cops, the cat's out of the bag. And you'd be right in thinking that, sort of. Let's think back on the two and a half statements we've heard thus far. Gacy has admitted to killing Peast and Tim McCoy. Gacy's confessions, which are considered direct evidence, And yes, the statements are hearsay, which we will cover in a later episode, but they are statements against its own interest, which the courts have found to be inherently reliable. Therefore, they are an exception to the hearsay rule. So we've got direct evidence at this point of two murders. The other 31, well, those are entirely circumstantial. They have zero direct evidence that Gacy actually committed the murders. They have direct evidence that he was illegally disposing of human remains, but that's it. So I will ask you to play defense attorney here for a moment. Based on what you've heard thus far throughout this season, what possible scenario could you argue regarding these bodies being dug out of the crawl of the creep's home that could lead one to a different inference than it was Gacy who killed these young men? Now, I know there's been a lot of information dumped on you in the last 16 episodes, but you can do it. Think. If you answered a couple of guys named Cram and Rossi who lived in Gacy's home for parts of 77 and 78, when we know that a majority of the boys were killed, you get a gold star. Because hell yes, those two guys would have been an excellent alternate theory of defense. I mean, they've admitted to digging in the crawl. They've admitted that they lived in the house. They've admitted Gacy traveled a lot. Rossi was driving Zick's car for over a year. Cram was wearing a victim's watch. Think back to our little lesson in episode three about means, motive, and opportunity. As far as Cram and Rossi are concerned, we can certainly pin means and opportunity on them. Motive, not so much. But do we know what Gacy's motive was either? No, not really. Sure, he's claimed that all these victims were blackmailing him for money in exchange for them not revealing just, in fact, how gay he was. But are you buying that? No, me either.
2: case is lacking. Not only I, I think that all I got to do is be able to fill up my character
1: and destroy my character. They may, they may be able to claim I'm a
2: homosexual. Their case is not... Uh... In my estimation. But that's Australia. a strong one. Itself. No. Just looking at the evidence. It's, things you it's mentioned. a large mountain of circumstantial, circumstantial evidence, evidence. Right. You
1: got it. But now, the same thing when you when you pin them down on the fucking vehicles, you say, Fine, you wanna charge me take the possession of my vehicle on a murder warrant? Tell me who, when, where, how, and what.
2: Well I'll have to do that. Okay. No, two well in my own mind again, and, and, and I, I don't
1: know I, I don't know the legal aspects of it I don't know how the hell they can take 278 vehicles and 179
2: vehicle and link it to 30 guests they can take it John because they have the power of the state whether or not they're going to be able to connect it is the question same thing with the destruction of the house. You know, they're going ahead like a bull in a china uh, shop. They I, seized because everything. Because the they're...
1: bodies have been found in my house. How do you know they were murdered somewhere else and brought there?
2: They're convicting you and they're punishing you by coming at you at your personal property, your house, real estate. Oh, they're stripping you of every vestige of a citizen. I think they're making a mistake in their approach to it. But I think that the reason they're doing it is because they don't want well, the to do Well They're it. trying to dehumanize them, They're trying to dehumanize As far as I'm concerned. The um, legally, it doesn't appear that they can keep at least two of those vehicles, nor can they continue the destruction of the house or say that now it's unsafe. Because they've made it unsafe, and if they continue to chip away at it with the bricks and the structure during the pendency of, of this petition they have to raise the house, they're further uh, harming their position. In addition to that, we're going to have our experts in there. If they still continue to go that way,
1: well, they yeah, are. Like I say, with on the But
2: all of this is without uh, outside the limits of the law. Of what they're doing I mean they're subjected themselves to civil suits and that's why they're going in these directions well, they don't
1: really fuck the civil
2: suit party you
1: know and, and I of course I only heard of how you guys explain the search warrant when we went and addressed mm-hmm. them on the search warrant okay a search warrant gives them
2: evidently unlimited destruction rights absolutely not you know it doesn't from listening to me well the thing with this is that that's what's happening they're going beyond that and all okay, we can do is can then go in again to Garippo and say, I think we better redefine the parameters of where they can go on the search for it. Okay, how can they destroy, then, uh, take the brick cell? How
1: do how do you go about it? Or what, or I, maybe maybe I'm being petitious, but then why the hell hasn't it been done already? Why haven't they been able to be told? Because
2: until this thing came up with the house, with wanting to raise the house, we assumed that they were going to just start digging up the front. Back here. No, I leave the shell there. Then they came up with this, so that's you take things as they come. I don't want to jump on their merry-go-round with them. I want to take one thing as it goes by. Oh yeah,
1: grab the ring as the merry-go-round comes around. And I can then work
2: on it, especially with the civil things. Well, progressing, and we are progressing uh, very well in the criminal aspect of the case, as far as. The defense. I mean, as far as Rappaport goes, and as far as many other developments in the thing,
1: Rappaport doesn't give me any opinions. You have he uh, won't. Sam. started to go over what Reifman and Hartman had found, but then you guys never. He never finished it. You know, he was breaking down some of their stuff to me, and I wanted to know more about what where, where the hell their
2: conclusions were yeah. and what they're basing it on. They're basing it on nothing. I mean, they didn't do any exam. They didn't look for what... No, not with 12 hours of, of studying, no. I mean, well, how the hell valid is that opinion? I mean, they didn't do any well, uh, I think physiological f- examinations, Jim. I
1: think, I
2: think he can bring anybody and make them look like an respect. I mean, I think he was paranoid of me. I'm not concerned about Reefman's report because it's full, full of shit.
1: The other thing is, is that... Uh, Okay, uh, Sam was trying to clarify the similarities between me and, and that Elmer Wayne Elmer Wayne Henley case in Texas. And other than reading the one article, I think once, or maybe I've seen two articles in the paper, I do not know, I did not follow the case, I don't know anything about it. I know it had to do with with, with the young kid killing the older man because he was involved with, with two young boys and they were soliciting or pulling in people for him to
2: kill at random or sexually abuse. and then there are some similarities but one of the things is handcuffs
1: <coughs>
2: <coughs> but uh, i think that's some theory that uh okay
1: now you guys know joe it joe
2: has concocted and his you guys
1: you guys know it that the handcuffs that they recovered were not the ones no but if you tell me now that they've torn out the whole
2: attic place is empty up
1: there well then they evidently found the other handcuffs upstairs they had to wouldn't destroyed the because the other ones were laying up in the uh, insulation unless they I would say they had to find the other handcuffs Unless one of them
2: thought I dropped my handcuffs and picked them up, thought they were at all. Yeah. Well, I know you're anxious to get answers, but bear with us a while.
1: I, I'm we'll bearing no. John. I'm bearing with you, guys. I, don't want you down, I want you to get down. Uh, I want you to get. I want the know. people that are supposed to be working, like Leroy Stevens and Gabriel, who, who's taking a sweet time too on this shit. See, I, I don't know. I'm looking for them to take some of the workload off you guys by doing their fucking well, share so of the job. We if they want to fucking be a uh, part that's why of it I asked you what I asked you. on the 23rd when I was brought into this institution on that Saturday morning they did they never got no blood from me but they did do a urinalysis I think they took a urine sample as to how how far they went into it and what depth they went into it
2: alright if they did do a urine sample on that morning and there are traces of valium left in it then they can figure uh, they know how long you were in custody. They can diminish it. Well, I, there are I things I that you remember when you're under the influence of drugs that you don't remember now. First of all,
1: I remember that there was one in 72. I remember Bruckovich was in 74. I think Zik and Zike and uh, Gatsik, I don't know which two, which one came first or second. I think that they were in 76 and 77. And Impeach is number 78. So there's five. Those are the five that I remembered and where the hell did the rest of them come from? Did you See, here, if in fact that I knew of only those up until that period of 76, and you see there was five in 78 which I stated, then you're telling me there was 25 at least in 77. Impossible. Because I wasn't in town. I wasn't in town hardly at all in 77. I was gone all the time.
2: Yeah, but it fits in with, uh, as far as I'm concerned, with all these killings taking place after your divorce.
0: I guess so. So, as far as circumstantial evidence goes, there's some pretty strong inferences that can be made regarding Cram and Rossi's involvement. So while Gacy is screwed as far as the victims he's confessed to killing, the others, I'm not so sure about that. Remember at this point in time on December 22nd, Gacy has only been charged with the murder of Rob Peast, not the other 32, meaning there is still time for either the state to charge Cram and Rossi as at the very least, accomplices, and quite possibly as killers themselves. It's certainly something that Bill Kunkel will be looking at very closely as the case proceeds. And he's not the only one. We will be as well.
3: Well, just some more, I mean, along those same lines, I mean, the whole whole thing about Accomplice? Now, have you seen his tapes, video? His video on this new series on uh, Peacock, where he's trying to bring in this, uh, or the uh, there's I don't know if he's trying to do it or the reporter is the main instigator about some international sex ring or you know pornography and all this. Well, he wasn't into that. I mean, he showed. The the stag films that he showed William Donnelly are basically the same stag films they would show at somebody's bachelor party. You know what I mean? And back in the day, I mean these are all these are all you know eight uh, millimeter or sixteen millimeter films. There's no videos or anything like that back then. They're raw. I mean, they're basic. You know, your basic type of skin flex. But you know, they're all over the place. and that's what he used back in the JCs in Waterloo. That's how, and he says that in his uh, his statements in those, uh, by interviewed by that weirdo from wherever he was. Yeah, I mean, if he was a female, he probably would have married him And a joint. Like guys that chase Bundy around. Uh, he's a beauty, but anyway. But anyway. Uh, yeah, he goes into that whole thing. Well, you know, we knew that at the time. Uh, you know, that was something that the defense, you know, sort of tendered to us like, you guys should be looking at these porn ring, blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what? We did. I mean, there was even a guy contacted from Interpol, okay? And nothing. And plus, the guy, other than like that, like I say, the kind of run of the mill. Garden variety stuff that he was involved in, even with the j c s uh was it i mean he kept everything, so when his house when we went through when took everything out of the house i mean i mean that's another thing by the way that destroys his whole he's claiming he's got these documents that show some of the murders were when he was out of town. Well, that's total nonsense we had a we had a postal inspector a former postal inspector and a former FBI agent who were both state attorneys' investigators at the time, older guys. And they spent forever uh, up in a room on the 14th floor 20th, at the administration building going through... He was a pack rat. And we had all his former documents, not just from the business, but his whole life. I mean, everything. Uh, the onion skin receipts from buying gas, you know, everything, bills, the construction bills, the the timesheets, you name it, it's all there. And they go through all this stuff. Well, bottom line is, now obviously for the unidentifieds, we don't have a firm date to look at. But for all the identifieds, and actually, although we went to trial on 22, there were actually 24 known at that time. The reason we didn't do the other two, and the defense was aware of this, that uh, they were late entries. In other words, the IDs had been made while we already were ready to go start trial. And we didn't want to, the delay, and we didn't want to, uh, you know, we just didn't want to delay it. And the families were aware of our, our position, and so we went ahead with the 22. But in any event, uh, they produced envelopes, one for each known date of disappearance, and then, you know, plus a day or two, and had up to a dozen documents for some of them, but at least two documents putting Gacy here for each of the known victims meaning a, no, a very accurately known date of disappearance. Okay? Now, for for the unknowns, we were working, you know, there were a couple of them were uh, doubles, and so there was at least one guy that was an unknown at the time that obviously we had a good date for because we had a date for the guy he was in the same plastic bag with. Uh you know, and so forth. So there were, just from the way the bodies were buried, you could figure out pretty exact sequence. And uh, so we had documents for many of the unknowns as well. Now his claim that he has documents, which of course he didn't have, because he didn't have those documents, because they were in the clerk's storeroom at 23rd and Rockwell, and I still are, because Aurelia Pachinsky changed it to a historical exhibit for Leopold and Loeb and herons and so forth, and all that stuff is in there because we gave him not just uh, the clerk. Of course, had all the trial identified exhibits, but we gave him all all the stuff that was identified but not used or completely unidentified at trial, but might be relevant to either side in a retrial. So there's a ton of stuff in that in there that is not part of the trial record.
0: Let's jump back to the 22nd of December and head back into the interrogation room with Gacy, Albrecht, and Finder and see what else the creep has to say for himself. As always, this is verbatim from Mike's written report. Mr. Finder asked Gacy if he kept any tokens or mementos from his first victim, and he said no he didn't, and that After that, he didn't kill anybody for six months because of his marriage. Gacy then asked if we had Michael Rossi and David Cram under arrest at the station. We told him no and asked Gacy why, and Gacy said that they were his accomplices. Oh boy, here we go. Reporting officer asked Gacy if they had a part in any of the killings. Gacy did not answer that question directly, but rather started talking about having sexual relations on numerous occasions with both of those people. He also indicated that Cram was a pusher and a pimp. Gacy said that Cram would make contacts for him because he could supply his young people with drugs. Gacy then said David Cram's father had committed murder once, but had never been arrested for it. When asked by a reporting officer, Gacy did not know who the victim had been. Mr. Finder then asked Gacy about the specifics of how Cram and Rossi had been involved in the killings. Gacy indicated that because of his heart condition, he had Rossi and Cram dig the trenches in the crawl space. Reporting officer then asked if one or both had ever been involved with burying a victim or handling the bodies in any way. Gacy indicated that they had not, but had only dug the trenches. Gacy was then asked if Cram and Rossi had known what was in the crawl space. Gacy indicated that they had not. Now, let's examine this for a moment. Gacy just can't decide if he wants to throw Cram and Rossi under the bus. One moment he's ready to do it, then in the next breath, he retracts. He is asked in two of the three statements if Cram and Rossi are in the station as well. He asked almost immediately during the first confession. The answer he received was no. He basically dropped the subject at that point. Same thing here. Some 28 hours after the first statement, Gacy asks again if they've been arrested. Now, he obviously hasn't forgotten about the first time he asked if they were in the station. He's checking again. Well, what about now? Remember back pre-arrest when Gacy grilled both Cram and Rossi about what they may or may not have said to the cops after their lengthy interviews? He must have, at that point, been satisfied with the responses to him because he has not directly pointed the finger at them thus far. But Gacy knows everything changes when people get arrested. It becomes a mere him scenario. So Gacy, when he is asking if they've been arrested or are in custody, he is doing so for the express reason of knowing whether or not the situation has in fact become a it's a him or me scenario with regards to both cram and rossi and i'll plant this thought in your mind as we continue with the statement if cram and rossi really didn't know anything then what the hell is gacy so concerned about them saying it would have been very interesting in retrospect to see what Gacy would have puked up about those two guys if Albrecht had thought to lie to Gacy and tell him, yes, they are in custody. Very interesting indeed. But I digress. Gacy was then asked if Cram and Rossi had known what was in the crawl space. Gacy replied that they never said anything to him about what was in the crawl space, but if they didn't know what was down there, they were fucking stupid. Gacy was then asked about the odor that was in the crawl space. He replied that some of the odor was not caused by the bodies, but instead by the dampness in the crawl space itself. Gacy indicated that he put the lime in the crawl space to get rid of the dampness. He also said that he put muriatic acid on the bodies to dissolve them at a faster pace. Reporting officer then asked Gacy if he had bisexual relations with a man while he was married, to which he answered affirmatively. He also said that he met a lot of his sexual partners, some of which were victims, in an area called Bug house Square. Gacy indicated that he was able to have his relationships at home because his wife would oftentimes leave for the evening, spend the night at a friend's house, or leave the home and go to an area in Minnesota. Mr. Finder or myself then asked Gacy about the sick boy. Gacy said that he remembered him and also remembered that he spelled his name in a very unusual manner. Gacy said that he felt Zick was rather strange in some of the things that he liked to do. Gacy then rather abruptly said that Zick was in the crawl space. I asked Gacy if he kept anything or any kind of memento from Zick and he answered affirmatively saying he kept a ring. Reporting officer then asked Gacy if he could explain where the bodies were in the crawl space. He tried to describe it and was having a difficult time in telling us exactly where the bodies were buried. And I asked if he could draw us a diagram. I then supplied Gacy with a pen and a pink sheet of paper. Gacy at first couldn't get the pen to work and made a comment on the lousy pen I had given him. He then drew a diagram of the house showing where the crawl space entrance was and explaining by drawing a short line where each body was at also making a point of showing where the first victim had been buried and where the concrete slab had been poured. Gacy drew the first half of the diagram very neatly and explained to us in great detail what he was drawing. Just prior to finishing his sketch, Gacy became very tense and clenched his fists very tightly and closed his eyes. He remained in this position for about 30 seconds. Hmm, let me guess. Jack Hanley is now leaving the building. After Gacy relaxed his body, he looked at us and we told him to take it easy and get some rest. Gacy then looked at the sketch he had just drawn and said that that was a sketch of his crawl space and showed where the bodies were and that Jack must have drawn that. At this time, I took the pen and paper from Gacy, told him to get some rest and that we would come back and talk to him later. Casey then became very apologetic, asking what did he say and what did he do wrong and why we had to leave him. We replied for him to get some rest, take it easy, and we'll be back to talk to him later. At this time, Mr. Finder and myself left the cell block area. Mr. Finder and myself proceeded back to the detective section of the police station where we were met by Assistant State's Attorney, Bill Ward. In his possession, he had two pictures of victims that had been taken from the Desplaines River in Will County. He asked us if we could show these pictures to Gacy to see if he could identify the people. We returned to the cell area and spoke to Mr. Gacy, showed him the pictures, one of the pictures being that of Frank Landigan. Gacy looked at the Landigan picture and said that he recognized that subject, knowing him from a bar in Franklin Park. I asked him if that was one of his victims. And he said, no, I don't think so. Gacy also indicated that the other subject was not familiar to him at all. Now, this is interesting because Frank Lanigan's body was recovered from the Desplaines River on November 12th of 78, before Gacy was arrested. He had been reported missing on November 4th of 1978. So he was one of the last victims that was killed. It appears that working backwards, it went Robert Peast, James Mazzara, and Frank Landigan, all within a month and a half of Gacy's arrest. So why in the hell is Gacy saying that Frank isn't one of his victims? I mean, why lie about that when he's given up so much information and is already admitting to killing Mazzara on November 23rd of 78? He has nothing to gain by lying about this particular victim. And really, nothing more to lose by admitting it. It seems to me that there would be no way that killing Frank Landigan would have slipped his mind. Maybe, just maybe, there's another explanation. Do I need to spell it out for you? I didn't think so. So that's it. That's the creep's third and final statement to Albrecht, that is. Now, remember, these statements were not recorded for reasons unknown, and they were drafted by Mike at some point, weeks after Gacy made the statements. And they were drafted based on two things, Mike's memory and his notes. Now, Mike was kind enough to give us a copy of his handwritten notes from these interviews which we will be posting for our defense team members to review, which I really do encourage them to do because they are very interesting. I'm sure if you have the keen eyes and minds that I believe you to have, you will spot some wildly inconsistent facts between his handwritten notes and what ends up making it into the reports. If you want access, you can kill two birds with one stone by supporting the show and joining the defense team for all the extra special attention that we show our defense team members at wwwpatreon backslash defense diaries. I think maybe twice in my 20 year career, despite always asking for them, have I ever gotten my hands on the cops handwritten notes. Unlike our defense team, no one saw Mike's notes from Gacy's defense team. That is for certain. And there's one little nugget I'd like you to ferret out in those notes. How many bodies does Gacy actually claim were buried under his house? Hmm, the plot thickens. So is Gacy finally done talking? And when and how are they going to find Robbie P's body? Shit's about to get even weirder. Hear all about it on the next episode. Of defense diaries once again we are supplying the number to our victims hotline in the hopes that someone out there knows something so that maybe we can bring a little bit of peace to a family or families that have been in pain for 40 plus years and that number is 844-78-VIC-23 that's 844-78-VIC-23 and as always, I'd like to thank all of our listeners who consistently listen to the show and our defense team members from Patreon. We adore you guys. You guys mean so much to us. Because without you guys, I would just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know exactly where
1: the body's at.